Uh, so we're jumping in here, Se Psalm 73 through 150. There's a handout here in the middle. Hopefully everybody has that. Uh, this, is, um, <laughs> this is not normal. Normally uh, we'd have a little bit more time and not go as fast as, I mean, Bible overview, the, the extent of this class and tip, typically is that we are kind of drinking through a fire hose, going incredibly fast through the text. Uh, this uh, particular week is uh, kind of that same thing, but even a bigger fire hose, okay? So uh, we're getting through the entire second half of Psalms today. Uh, again, you have the notes here, but it's five pages of notes, so we're going to be flying through. We will stop down at a few moments and uh, uh, try to apply the text to our lives as New Covenant believers, um, but uh, we are going to be going very, very quickly. Now, I, if you were here last week, uh, great. If you weren't, I'd encourage you to listen online. You can also, if you sign up uh, on the on the app, uh, hopefully everyone has done that, but if you do, uh, you can... Um, uh, get the, the notes ahead of time. You can get the notes if you missed them. You get extra resources. Uh, there's a couple extra resources out there, including um, the order of the, of the Hebrew Bible, and that you can kind of read that and kind of get an understanding of why we're studying the Old Testament in the way that we are um, here now doing the writings, which is the third section of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and uh, let's see, uh, before we, uh, this is kind of related, but last week we talked about this concept of scripture formulation, uh, where there's, we kind of see this in three stages. The first is composition. So if you think about the Psalms, many of these are written by David. Um, we're going to see some other ones uh, written by some other folks uh, here today. Um, and that's the individual compositions of the different psalms where maybe the author might be taking some source documents, but they're writing some commentary. They're putting this thing together uh, with its theological purpose. That's composition. Canonization is when it starts getting collected together and uh, it's recognized as authoritative and it's used uh, within the textual community, right? So uh, in the time of Solomon and the other kings, Many of these psalms would have been read in these uh, in the worship services, um, in the temple. Uh, many of them would have been used in this way. So that's what you think about canonization. Then consolidation is more putting them all together uh, in a final form for future generations. So this is really what we see kind of this process of canonization and consolidation. We're really seeing this with the psalms because uh, the psalms is a collection as the one through 150, Psalms as a collection is really um, post-exile, right? It's after uh, the, the Southern Kingdom has been wiped out and taken to Babylon. That's really when it's being collected as a larger unit and being finished. Some of the Psalms are not you know, finished until that time, right? Or not written or composed until that time. So it, consolidated in this form that we have it in our Bibles, is really something that happened uh, much later than, say, the time of David, okay? So we think about all three of these. Uh, they're relevant to consider when we think about uh, the communicative action or the authorship, um, uh, the intention or the meaning of these uh, psalms. So, um, and it's important when we think about consolidation to think about the five books of the psalms. This, the psalms, 1 through 150, have been 
uh, collected in these five scrolls. Uh, last week we went through the first two and I kind of gave you uh, kind of a thematic summary of each one. So um, last week we went through David's rise through affliction and then book two, which is about David's reign. So we'll go through uh, the other three uh, here today. Um, also, um, we were talking a couple weeks ago about the purpose of studying the Old Testament, why we do that as New Covenant believers, how much the New Testament um, assumes that you, as the reader, know something about these Hebrew texts that it's referencing, okay? Um, and uh, Paul, you had something for us that kind of gives us there's some interesting stats related to um, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I came across this on uh, Wycliffe Associates is a sister organization to Wycliffe Bible Translators. And I was on the website Wycliffe Associates this week, and it said 30 Old Testament books are referenced in the New Testament. And out of the almost 8,000 New Testament verses, there are 4,100 Old Testament references. So more than half, depending on what reference means. Right. And then the ongoing need for translation, there's 7,000 languages, maybe more, in our world. Only 700 have a complete Bible. Another 2,800 have just the New Testament. Yeah. So the ongoing need for translation, but the prevalence of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the question again is what, what is a reference, but that, that does, ha that, and if you're interested in that, there's a guy, uh, author named Richard Hayes who's done a whole study on, okay, these, he's kind of um, categorized direct quotations of the Old Testament um, allusions or kind of references, more direct references, and then kind of um, allusions that he calls echoes, right, that are kind of thematically like the Old Testament, but there's a lot of dispute whether is it actually a direct reference or not. So, but, you know, again, there's so much, right? They're, they're anticipating, the New Testament authors are anticipating that you know something about these texts. So that's why we're doing this. That's why we study through it. Uh, here on Sunday mornings. But again, we're not going to do it like Rich does in the sermons, right? We're not going to do exegesis in that detail. Uh, we're going to fly through this and give you just kind of an overview and how to read it, okay? So uh, let's jump in here. Psalm 73 through 106, the God who rebukes yet sustains and his restoration. So um, we, uh, and I just also briefly want to mention, it's going to come up again and again. If you want to get thematic kind of meaning of all of the Psalms, I think the best way to think about all of the Psalms together as a consolidation is to read Psalm 1 and 2, as we did last week. Psalm 1 is about uh, righteousness that comes through the reading of the word, and Psalm 2 is the righteousness that comes through the Messiah. So one leads to the other, and we see this pattern throughout the Psalms. First the word, then the Messiah, okay? So we'll see that again as we um, study more today. Okay, so let's jump into book three. Um, 
starting Psalm 73 through 89. Yeah, that's, this is all of book three is this next section, okay? So let's jump into this, all right? Uh, so the next book of the Psalms is characterized by the fall of Israel into sin and rebellion. Those are your two blanks there. Starts with the psalm with a psalm of Asaph, who discusses why the people should remain faithful even when the wicked seem to prosper. Now there are several psalms of Asaph. Um, he's a choir leader at the temple. He's listed in Second Chronicles five twelve. Um, so many of these are thought to be written by uh, him and his descendants, and they're called descendants. Uh, disciples, etc. They're called the Psalms of Asaph because they're by these kind of this choir director and his group. Okay, um, so to prosper is the blank there. He knows that in the end, quote, those who are far from you will perish. The subject of the prosperity of the wicked is also dealt with in Psalm 37 and 49, and Job. Job, we're going to study next week. Uh, he cries out to God, appealing to him for protection from the enemy. Quote, how long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Um, this is 75, verse 2, God responds, well, you know, I have selected this time. <laughs> like, basically, like, it'll happen when it happens. I'm in control of this. Um, he states that God will put down the proud and exalt the righteous. He speaks of God's victorious power, saying, Who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Asaph remembers many of the great deeds of God, saying he, quote, will meditate on all your work. <clears throat> So uh, this is an interesting uh, little point here. This is 77, 11 through 15. Could I have a volunteer read these five verses? Psalm 77, 11 through 15. I got it. Okay. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and, and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Awesome. Thank you. So this is a, there's a sense here of, you know, we may not be seeing your deeds right now in front of us, but we remember your deeds. This is something about your character we can hold to because we do know that this has happened in the past. We remember your mighty works. Okay. So he reflects on the unfaithfulness of the people. That's the blank there. Unfaithfulness of the people. Unfaithfulness or faithfulness? Faithfulness. Unfaithfulness. Let me drink water so I can speak better. Unfaithfulness of the people. Yet God's continued guidance in spite of this. God's anger burned against Israel because they did not believe him. They then sought after him, quote, and remembered that God was their rock. They rebelled again and again, yet God 
led forth his own people like sheep. The history is very similar to Israelite histories from the Pentateuch and the prophets. And you, got, you see uh, various references there. Okay, so Asaph is comforted uh, by God's great deeds and faithfulness of the past. He laments over the destruction of Israel, I'm sorry, of Jerusalem by foreign nations. So uh, Psalm 78, he goes over the destruction of the northern kingdom. And Psalm 79, he talks about the destruction of the southern kingdom. Uh, neither prove faithful to God, but he still laments here about the destruction by these foreign nations. Uh, he pleads with God to rescue the people from their situation. Uh, let's see, this, this is 80. Um, Psalm 80, verse uh, 17. says, uh, let's see, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So this restoration is coming through the Messiah. Here it is based on a son of man at God's right hand. So uh, this in itself, this psalm, it's tough to make the argument necessarily that this is the Messiah. I think we can uh, make an argument later that this is refer referring to the Messiah, and this restoration is really uh, that he has envisioned here is the Messiah. We'll see that here. Um, I believe we can make the connection as we continue to move on. Um, God relives the Israel's disobedience, saying that they, quote, did not listen to my voice. Asaph pleads with God to judge the wicked and to defeat Israel's enemies. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever, and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you, are, you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Okay, so now we're to uh, Psalm 84, 85. These are uh, the sons of Korah. Um, these are psalms by the sons of Korah. These are descendants of Korah who is mentioned in uh, Numbers 16. So the sons of Korah long for temple worship, saying, quote, a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. So there's many, uh, praise, so many praise songs you can find from these. Um, that's a praise song I know very well. Um, so uh, placed here, this psalm really expresses the hope of the rebuilding of the temple, right? Psalm 79 was about the destruction of the southern kingdom. Now we have this restoration of being in your temple again, worshiping you again. Um, it's a hope of the rebuilding of this temple. They pray for, uh, let's see, what does it say? Mercy. They pray for mercy on the nation, mentioning God's indignation and anger towards them. David picks up on this theme by praying a prayer of trust in God. That's Psalm 86. He asked God to answer him in his day of trouble, emphasizing that God is God alone. 
He says that all nations will bow before him one day. Uh, the sons of Korah discuss the benefits of being a citizen of Zion. Uh, because of these, they petition God for salvation, saying, quote, Your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. Uh, so Psalm 87, that's what, what I'm just quoting there. That's really pushing the hope of restoration uh, to the distant future. Those of you who studied the prophets with us in the fall, um, we saw this kind of, and we'll talk about this with the Davidic covenant, but we saw this kind of hope of restoration um, in Jeremiah and then in the early minor prophets. Zechariah, Malachi, the end of the minor prophets, really start pushing the timing of this future restoration to a more distant time. Um, and so this, I think, is similar to that, verses 2 and 3 of, of Psalm 87. It's really about the Messiah's future reign over Zion and the world. And again, all of this comes back to Psalm 1 and 2. Okay, Psalm 2, you can really see a lot of this throughout all of the Psalms. The fall of David's house is lamented. God has made a covenant with David. That's the blank there. Covenant with David saying, I will establish your seed forever. However, he says that, quote, if your sons forsake my law, then I will punish their transgression with the rod. He reiterates that although this punishment will happen, Quote, my covenant I will not violate. Uh, we're going to talk about the Davidic covenant uh, a little bit more uh, here in a little bit. But um, uh, obviously the Davidic covenant runs through a lot of this. This isn't even, these are the, psalm, the psalms of others, like psalms, psalms of Korah, psalms of Asaph. Um, but there's just so much here about the Davidic covenant, about David. Uh, my covenant I will not violate. Uh, the psalmist appeals to God in the midst of this punishment, asking for how long it will last. There will be a wait. There will be a struggle before restoration. We've seen this theme in the prophets a lot, Jeremiah especially. There's going to be a time of waiting. The language calls Israel God's anointed, describing the suffering it is enduring in the time in the same way the suffering that the servant and Davidic heir will suffer. We saw, uh, no problem, Isaiah 53, saw that prophecy there about the suffering servant. Uh, despite the suffering, the psalmist is confident in the character of God that has been presented previously. Uh, Psalm 89 is by Ethan the Ezraite. This is... Um, Probably, probably someone in David's court, some kind of, you know, worshiper, uh, leader of worship or some, someone like that, Ethan the Ezraite. Okay, so uh, let's just stop down. Let's talk about these, uh, some of these psalmists and uh, what they're doing here. Um, let me give you a, if I can give you a theme of, of the book, the third book. Um, this is really kind of after David... It's um, Solomon and the other kings until the exile. That's really the best way to think about it. Um, you know, it's this time until the exile. Solomon, 
to the exile. But as you can see, the hope is still built in David, the promise of David. So this is kind of, a lot of this is after David, but still reflecting back on these promises. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of these. Um, try to apply to our lives a little bit here. Um, significance here, Asaph and the other psalmists provide an example of how to trust God during struggle. We must remember the great things he has done in the past and remain sure of his character. Um, so just open this up for discussion. Do God's great deeds of the past give you any assurance for the future? What about what you know about him and his character? What comfort do these things provide? And remember, I mean, original, original audience of many of these would be those in the exile, right? Needing some, something to hold on to, something to hope for. Um, and again, I think, you know, thinking about the implied reader being anyone willing to submit to its authority, we're new covenant believers that also have sometimes these moments of waiting for the return of our King, man, stuff really stinks. The world is just falling apart. Um, so some of these things can be very helpful for us as well. So any thoughts on any of these questions here, discussion questions? Yeah. We have, sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, you go first. As we have seen God's faithfulness um, displayed in his word, we can trust that, uh, that he will be faithful. Mm. He's always faithful, mm -hmm. even when we're faithless. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's good. Virginia? I just, <clears throat> even thinking about earlier when you were talking about remembering the works of the Lord, I thought immediately of Psalm 111, mm. where it says, like, great are the works of the Lord, or sorry, it does say that, but he has caused the wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And then it goes through and talks about his character and why. So it's like he provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. So it's talking about when he provided food for the Israelites, and that was a sign that he was remembering his covenant even in the midst of their grumbling. Mm -hmm. And like um, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. I just feel like, I mean, there's more in that passage, but that's such a helpful one for me in the midst of, like, struggling to trust what the Lord's doing in that moment, to just look at that psalm and be reminded so consistently about what his character is and how he has sovereignly even provided this book that breaks down his faithfulness time and time again to so many people. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I, I think kind of an undercurrent of all of this is just how... Uh, utterly <laughs> worthless everything that we see in this temporal world is. Mm. Uh, we're not gonna, there's nothing here that we're going to be able to take with us. Mm. And, uh, and, and so all the media that tells us, oh, you need this, you need that, you need the other thing. Yeah, we can chase after it, but mm. it's chasing after the wind. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I just yeah. think how good it is that God gives us yeah. all these examples and mm. that, that he knows that we need that to be constantly reminded yes. that he's faithful and to have new examples, <coughs> to be reminded of the examples from the, from the past and to hear from other believers and to see it in our own lives mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. he could just say, like, I told you, you should believe me. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. You can take my word. Yeah. But instead he shows us over and over again. Yeah. That's good. 
Anybody else? Hebrews 11. Hmm. All those examples of the faith hall of fame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and then Hebrews 13 where it says, I am the same yesterday and today and forever. Hmm. Yep. But yeah, all those examples in, in chapter 11. Yeah. That's good. All right. Uh, let's keep going here. Chapter, I'm sorry, book four. Uh, we are now in, and that is um, here in this section, we're just going to do the 11 chapters here, Psalm 90 through 100. Okay, so book four begins with a prayer attributed to Moses. Uh, no reason not to believe this came from Moses. Um, it could have been passed around and kept, kept in the temple for all these years. Uh, so book four begins with a prayer attributed to Moses. He speaks uh, of God's eternity, saying, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He says that God can turn humans into dust and that man can only receive wisdom from him. He's using similar language here that he did in the Pentateuch to describe God's creative ability and dominion. Uh, he says, quote, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. God's promises many things. God promises many things to those who trust in him, including security, protection, presence, honor, and salvation. Uh, the psalmist praises the goodness of the Lord, saying that the righteous man seeks God's house. God's house. So Psalm 90 is Moses, 91 through 100. These are anonymous. Oh, we don't know who wrote these. Um, so the psalmist praises the goodness of the Lord, saying that the righteous man seeks God's house. The psalms are responding to the fallen situation at the end of book three by remembering basic truths about God and their relationship with him. Uh, talks about angels there in 91. Uh, verse 11 calls them protectors. Um, but yeah, so book four is more of a reflection book. It's a reflection for the time of the exile. Again, many of, many of books, um, if not all, of the, the, the psalms of book one and two were written <coughs> prior to the exile. That's composition date, but you know, again, collected together with these other ones that were, you know, more reflections after being in exile, like here in um, uh, book four. Um, okay, let's see here. Let me, let me, since we're talking about it, let me give you a theme. Yeah, this is exilic reflections. Exilic reflections. So reflections while they're in the exile, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. It's a, it's a reflections for the time of the exile, right? So we, we don't know authorship of a lot of these. Uh, we don't know timing, but uh, of course placed. And we, we see some timing here of, of this reign of kings until the exile, but reflecting back on the promises of David, now we have even more reflection back, but this time... Um, specifically knowing you're in exile, here's some reflections, okay? Uh, the psalmist furthers this by discussing God's majesty. Uh, 
He then asks God to avenge the people, saying God has been his help and stronghold in the past. So you don't need to worry about the wicked. God's provision is certain. His provision for you is certain. Uh, The wise will seek to be disciplined by God. For blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. The psalmist praises the Lord, calling him great above all the gods and creator of the earth. He warns the reader against unbelief. He calls people to worship God, saying he is to be feared above all gods. He speaks of the Lord's power and dominion, saying that whoever puts their faith in idols will be put to shame. They are worthless compared to God who is exalted far above all gods. So Psalm 93 through 99, these are really all about the Lord's rule over the world, his sovereign rule. Psalm 93 through 99, it's really the major theme here. So the psalmist calls on the reader to praise God. First, he praises him for his righteousness then for his faithfulness to Israel. He shouts a psalm of thanksgiving, saying, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Again, praise song there. Um, Let's actually uh, now stop down and look at uh, Moses' prayer a little bit more. Uh, Could I get a volunteer to read uh, chapter 90, verses 1 through 2, and then skip down to 9 through 12? So six verses in total. Yeah. Uh, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And then, uh, who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Awesome. Thank you. So, um, significance here, thinking about Moses' prayer. Moses' prayer is one we should all emulate. He knows that his current state is only temporary. He looks forward to his future state, knowing that God in his infinity can provide the wisdom he needs. Again, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this because we're, we're talking about something composed by Moses, 1400 B.C., um, kept and um, certainly recognized as authoritative for years and years because it was kept, but then used here as part of an exilic reflection. So again, thinking about this idea of a kind of a, um, a, a second edition of a published book, right? Um, he's not, the, the psalmist who's collecting this is not doing anything that Uh, disregards the authorial intent of Moses. He's simply using these theological truths as part of a larger collection for reflection on being in this time of exile and in trial, right? So it's really kind of a fascinating uh, thing, I think, when you think about, again, why I keep talking about these things so much, because I think God is doing something on a very large scale here through his sovereignty to bring forward these truths into this large story that any faith community can read and get 
wisdom from, right? So we here in West County and <laughs> St. Louis in 2024 are sitting here reading this and can see throughout history how these truths can, can really resonate and emulate for us. So um, anyway, so th these are some of the thoughts on here, significance. So some, some questions for discussion. How does Moses challenge you to think about your life? How should we go about our earthly lives if we know they're coming to an end at some day? How does that challenge us to seek God's wisdom? Any thoughts here? Moses or some of these other Psalms and thinking about um, some of these concepts. We should be thankful for just every day uh, that God gives us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think something yeah. that um, I've always loved about the psalm is how it calls you to know that your days are numbered, to know that you have a limited time under God's rule, and it calls you to act according into how you should live them out and not mm -hmm. just waste them or not just um, you know wait to do everything last minute, but to in fear and trembling work as you know work as a, as a believer who loves God and wants to seek Him and honor Him, mm -hmm. and that's something that I've always. Yeah, it's good. Anybody else? Well, I think it's not just studying, seeking God's wisdom in Scripture and studying it and knowing it, which is very, very important, but to be able to use that knowledge to share the gospel with other people mm. and to look for those God moments that we get maybe every day. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It reminds me not to cling too tightly to anything the world has to offer. Hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Okay. Uh, let's keep moving on here. Uh, Psalm 101 through 106. Uh, so this will take us through the end of book four. This little section here. Um, so Psalm 101 is by David... Psalm 102 is by an afflicted man. That's the only thing we know about the author there. And then 103 is by David again. And then 104 through 106 are anonymous. So uh, David professes his faithfulness to God, saying he will abide with others who are faithful. So um, Psalm 93 through 99, again, we're very... Uh, theocentric, theocratic psalms, all about God and his sovereignty. Now we have David's response to that. So saying, he will abide with others who are faithful. Uh, an afflicted psalmist, again, this is 102, an afflicted psalmist prays for help from God, crying out because God has cast him aside, letting his enemies run over him. He proclaims the everlasting nature of God saying, your years will not come to an end. David picks up the Psalms again, praising God for his mercies and, and goodness. He says that, quote, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Uh, we've talked about the concept of intertextuality. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's a reference uh, to a previous work of scripture 
this passage is a clear example of intertextuality. That, that phrase is used uh, several times in Scripture, um, and is including in the, in the prophets, in the minor prophets. Uh, so the psalmist then remembers God's creation and care for the earth. This is Psalm 104. Again, these are anonymous. Uh, he, quote, established the earth upon its foundation. And the psalmist says, quote, you appoint darkness and it becomes night. The psalmist's response to all this is to praise God and, quote, sing to the Lord as long as I live. Another praise song. All these praise songs are going through my head as we go through. You do not want, want them to come out of my mouth, but um, they're at least going through my head. <laughs> I'm not that bad of a singer, but um, yeah, it would not encourage you to come back, and I want you to keep coming back. All right. Um, okay, so let's see. The, he established, uh, where, where, did, where did I uh, leave off? Oh, as long as I live. Okay, so then he then remembers God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, uh, Joseph's deliverance of Israel and the exodus from Egypt. He says that this all came to pass because God, quote, has remembered his covenant forever. Um, still, there's, there seems to be some ambiguity here at the end of 105. Um, had the people actually succeeded in realizing the land promise? There's kind of this, you know, question. So he's remembering all these things that God did. He says that this all came to pass because God has remembered his covenant forever. Um, but, you know, what if, what if they had succeeded in realizing the land promise? So there's this kind of open question about the land promise that's still out there. Of course, um, all I have written here is the end of 105. Okay. 40, 43, 44. There you go. 43, 44. So I don't know that it's like a definitive statement about any of that. It's just kind of, it's kind of interesting. He's kind of openly wondering about these things. Um, okay, so the book closes with more memories of Israel's rebellion at the Red Sea and God's deliverance of them. He remembers their failures in the desert and their serving of idols in the land. Uh, God has continued to show compassion, and the author is hopeful that he will show it once more, saying, quote, Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations. Okay, so um, I'm still going to wait and talk about the Davidic Covenant at the end here, but um, really, Davidic Covenant is really at play here throughout Book 3, the end of Book 2. Um, that's really a kind of a thematic um, theological theme running through all of this, so remember that. Uh, okay, so let's uh, talk about Psalms 107 through 119. This is Book 5. Um, and this really, I think, kind of, again, kind of brings us full circle to, again, these promises of David. I think this is really about God's deliverance. 
And it's really God's deliverance through the Messiah, through the Davidic king that we saw, again, programmatically promised or talked about in Psalm 2. Okay? So Psalm 107 through 119, the fifth book of the Psalms begins with praise to God for answered prayers. It comes right after the prayer for return from exile at the end of book four. The people wandered, endured trouble, and were distressed, but God is there to set Quote, the needy securely and on and on high away from affliction. Um, yeah, so this seems to be a psalm about God's rescue after the exile. This Psalm 107 here. Uh, God, David continues praising God for rescuing the faithful. He asks God for vengeance on the enemies of Israel saying, quote, when he is judged, let him come forth guilty. This is uh, Psalms 108 through 110. Um, some of this is a little hard to read, I'll be honest. And this is not a, I wouldn't call this the easiest thing to interpret in all of Scripture. Um, Psalm 109 is particularly tough. Uh, it's a little bit easier if you think about um, some of the, uh, you know, genre choices. Again, we think about authorial intent. We think about the choice of the genre. So it's thinking of some of this poetically, it's poetic language. Maybe it's not as harsh as it really seems, but um, there's some stuff about there about, you know, vengeance on the enemies of Israel. There's some stuff in there about women and children. And so it's, it's, it's difficult to read. So I'm not trying to overpass it. I'm just telling you it's, is difficult. I don't have an easy answer for it. All right. Um, okay, so the Davidic covenant is then reaffirmed. God gives utmost authority to the Davidic throne, saying, quote, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. That is clearly a messian overtly messianic uh, passage there. Uh, lots of references or, or allusions there to uh, the promises of Genesis 49, uh, the scepter being uh, in the line of Judah, and then, of course, um, uh, David, the promises to David. Uh, he also makes another promise saying, quote, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Oh, boy. Uh, the priestly and kingly roles are to be shared by the Davidic throne at some point in the future. We saw a little bit of this in Zechariah. This idea that you know, the, the Messiah is not only going to be a king, he's actually going to be a holy man. He's going to be a priest. Um, so this is kind of returning to that theme. Priestly and kingly roles are to be shared by the Davidic throne at some point in the future. This is certainly the, the Davidic kings spoken of in previous texts. Other kings are rebuked for performing priestly acts, but this particular king will fulfill both roles just like Melchizedek. If you remember this kind of bizarre story of Melchizedek, Abraham 
wins these battles and we, you know he's got these shepherd warriors and they win these battles and save these cities and then these you know they have all these spoils and this Melchizedek guy the king of Salem just shows up and they give him a tenth of the spoils this mysterious character we don't know who he is we don't even know what Salem really is the idea is it's probably where Jerusalem is now at this point but it's um, this this he's given this tenth of the spoils um, and, and there's kind of this allegiance given to him. So uh, it's very interesting here. Psalms picking this up and talking about him being just like Melchizedek. The, the Messiah will be like Melchizedek and that he's not only a king, but he's also a priest. Uh, and then, of course, we see the New Testament picking this up. Jesus himself acknowledges. That's the blank there. Jesus acknowledges this text as one that refers to the Messiah. Uh, Hebrews 5 through 7 uses this passage to, the, to discuss Jesus' priestly role in his death and resurrection, claiming that he is in fact the one who has fulfilled uh, this promise. You got some references there. Um, so we could, we could actually spend a whole hour talking about Melchizedek. We can't do that, but um, it's a very interesting uh, case study. And um, what, what is Moses intending to speak about with Melchizedek, that's, I think, harder to discover. Um, but Psalms really gives us some real theology about him here, and then Hebrews does as well. And I think there's this open kind of question of what is the Hebrews author saying? I encourage you to go read that. Is, is he arguing that Melchizedek is just a type of Christ, like a, you know, a precursor to Christ? Or is he actually saying this is Christ pre-incarnate, right? A guy who shows up and he's immediately given a tenth of the spoils. It's really a, just a fascinating thing. I don't know that this, this is definitely on the list of my questions that I want to ask when I get to heaven. But um, Okay, did, was there a raised hand? No, okay, all right. Was that like historical Christ, pre-incarnate Christ? Like yes, yes. There would just be a lot of speculation in it, but yes, <laughs> it would be fun. Um, yeah, the angel of the Lord, there's many, many of those um, references, the angel of the Lord, we can make some guesses there. Okay, um, so let's keep going here, Psalm 111 and 112, these are anonymous psalms. Um, what's very interesting about 111 and 112, these are acrostics, uh, so every sentence in the psalm begins with another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So I think they're both, are they both 22 verses? They're both 10, ten and nine. Ten, okay, well, it, it, anyway, they're acrostics, yeah. <laughs> they, they, like I think it's um, like the first line of the first verse. And yeah, the second line, second of, the line first. of the first verse, yep, 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 yep. So anyway, every sentence begins with another, another letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, which is fascinating. So the psalmist praises God for his goodness and works. Those are the two blanks there. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He says that those who fear him are blessed and will not fear others. God is unlike any other, high above all nations, Yet he raises the poor from the dust. The psalmist remembers God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. 
This makes all who worship idols fools because God is in the heavens doing these things and the idols are not real. God is able to hear, quote, my voice and my supplications. The psalmist thanks him for deliverance from death. That's the blank there, from death. Uh, he praises God for his loving kindness and is great toward us. For his loving kindness is great toward us. Sorry. Uh, the Lord is so good that he can save those who are distressed. <clears throat> he is able to restore the remnant. That's the blank there. Restore the remnant. Becoming my salvation. Uh, let's turn to 118. Um, verse 4, those who fear the Lord. So this is written to all nations. Um, uh, could I get a volunteer read uh, 118, 22 through 26, those five verses? Okay. Awesome. Thank you. So we've got this here um, speaking about the, the stone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You may have, uh, that may sound familiar to you. Jesus refers to this in uh, Matthew 21 and in Mark 12, Matthew 21, verse 42, Mark 12, uh, 10 through 11. Um, so salvation is coming through this stone, uh, has come through this stone. Of course, Jesus applies this to himself. Um, okay, so let's see, keep going here. Psalm 119, the largest psalm. This is also an acrostic. It is 22 sets of eight verses. So 22 Hebrew letters, 22 sets of eight verses. Uh, so it also serves in that way. So in order to save the remnant, it will need to return to God through his written word. Remnant will need to go to his written word. The psalmist meditates and reflects on God's law. He says that it gives instruction, understanding, guidance, and motivation. It is relevant and able to give hope. God's word is perfect and sufficient. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. And do not let me be ashamed of my hope. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. The remnant must rely on the word of God or be forced to face the consequences of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 through 28 yet again. Um, so... Again, this is righteousness coming through the word of God. 
So we saw, we've seen this theme throughout, right? Psalm 1 and 2. Psalms one, Psalm 1, God's will through his word. Psalm 2, the righteousness that comes through the Messiah. One leads to the other. The word, then the Messiah. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. We also saw it. Psalm 19, God's will and his word. Then Psalm 20 and 21, God's plan, God's deliverance through the Messiah. Now we're seeing it again. Psalm 119, God's will through his word. We're actually going to see the next 15 chapters are about his deliverance through the Messiah. Okay, so it's a similar thing. God's, God's righteousness through his word, this righteousness comes through the Messiah. The word, then the Messiah. Okay? Um, this, these two ways are the ways that God brings righteousness and salvation through his word, through his Messiah. Okay, so uh, let's stop down here. Let's read, um, let me get a volunteer to read, let's see, uh, about eight verses here, Psalm 119, 9 through 16. Can I get a volunteer to read, read that? Yeah. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your words? With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandment. I have not stored up your word in my heart, but I, I have stored up, I have not, yeah. I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth, in the way of your testimonies I delight. As much as in all this book, I will meditate on your precepts, and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes, I will not forget your word. Wow, very powerful. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so let's... Let's uh, talk about some significance here. For us, according to the psalmist, the word of God can divide the soul. It is God's special revelation and authority. His passion and knowledge of the word is something we should strive for. Uh, do you truly have a passion for God's word? Do you ever spend your downtime in it? Uh, how does Psalm 119 challenge us to embed the word in our hearts? Any thoughts here? Just really, in general, the, the, the passage here about God's word, the message about um, God's will and his righteousness coming through the word of God. Any thoughts here? Yeah. This is the passage that made me start to memorize scripture. Hmm. Um, Psalm 119, 9 through 11, specifically, like hiding his word in our hearts. And just like even, you know, as, as we've dug into the word over the years here at NCC, just understanding better that the Holy Spirit like illuminates our mind and brings to mind the scriptures mm. and that's when we really spend our time in scripture meditate on it memorize it and i think for me it's been so helpful since i started memorizing scripture to see the way that the holy spirit has really like used that and i mean there are definitely times where he will bring something to mind and i am like oh not now and i still move forward in my own sin and i you know hate that about my sinful flesh but there are other moments where it's really beautiful and wonderful to just be reminded of Scripture in moments of temptation or um, discouragement and the way that the Holy Spirit has just allowed that to um, strengthen my, my trust in God, I think. It's hmm. good. <clears throat> yeah. I think, too, I just see what, what a difference it makes in my attitude toward facing the day when I spend time in the Word and when I don't. And how hmm. that just reflects through my whole outlook of everything. And then how everything else that I might read all comes together and just kind of fills in. And then how much more prepared I am for worship when I come on Sundays 
and how much more I get out of it because of the time that I spent in it and that's what my focus is. Yeah. Now, am I perfect at that? No, but the difference is, is why I tell him, you know, it's not, that's uncanny. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Anybody else? Yeah. So I think uh, I try to read Psalm 119 uh, once a year. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the, the worst way to do that is just to sit down and start with verse 1 and mm -hmm. read until, you, until verse 172 or whatever it is. And then I think it's meant to be read, you know, a little bit. A little bit at a time, and so, uh, so for example, I'll read uh, just three verses a day, and I'll move it forward one verse per day, and that that takes about half a year mm -hmm. to, to get through it that way. Yeah, because it's so long, but it's but it's quite co coherent. Yeah, uh, as long as it is. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we in our precept study were Romans twelve is uh, what we're studying for this week. And my thought in, in looking at this is, can we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy unto the Lord, if we're not in his word? Hmm. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. This, this, part, this particular um, eight verses, I like how well they compare it. Like, they say, this is how God tells you to guide your life, guide your direction, how to live your life, is you have to put yourself humbly before these scriptures. And just even the language that he uses between testimonies of, like, reminders of what has happened, and then saying commandments, like, these are commandments that believers are to um, humbly study and understand so that way we can walk in it in order to walk in sanctification um, and just placing the value where it should be. You're not to see these as just another law to, you know, like a stop sign where if we're in a rush, we can, you know, if it's an emergency, you can carefully scoot through. These are absolutes. These are of God. And just, I like how clearly at the very beginning, he says, this is the value where these commandments should be. They should be highest commandments. They should be highest priority. Um, and just how he sets that up for the rest of the um, scriptures. Yeah, that's great. Okay, uh, let's finish up here. Psalm 120 through 134. These are very important. I, I do want, not want to minimize this um, in any way. These are very, very important psalms. I think often very underestimated, but they're very important for understanding biblical theology. These are the Psalms of Ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S. It should say it there in your Bible, uh, the song, a song of ascents. Um, so these psalms, or songs, here 120 through 134, these 15 are the, the psalms of ascents. Well, what does that mean? Well, ascents um, were initially, uh, before the destruction, uh, were, they were the steps leading up to the temple. So you would think about your song of ascents as you're approaching the temple and you're walking up the steps. Um, and then uh, after that, after the exile, um, you know, they became kind of more of a, uh, this idea of a, doing a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, right? You're going, the Song of Ascents is going up towards Jerusalem, right? Thinking of Jerusalem being higher because it is the city of the great king. I'm going up to Jerusalem, right? And then um, coming up out of the exile, 
It's really had a, a big connection to the idea of restoration and the Messiah, right? So the Song of Ascents, you're spying towards the city of the great king. Um, so that's, that's uh, written and used in this way and very, uh, again, placed right after Psalm 119 to continue this theme, okay? So the psalmist prays for deliverance from the treacherous, saying, quote, deliver my soul, O Lord, from my lips. He says that he will look to the Lord to keep Israel safe, saying the Lord will guard your, your going and your coming in. The psalmist prays for peace in Jerusalem. And then a prayer is made for the Lord's help. A prayer from David is given to praise God for rescuing Israel from its enemies. Uh, the hope is in the God who makes and the maintains, uh, not, and not the God who makes and maintains the mountains, not in the mountains themselves. Okay, Psalm 121. Um, God protects just like Mount Zion does. Quote, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. The psalmist thanks God for the return from exile. Their blessing and prosperity are seen to be from the Lord. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. The psalmist prays for the overthrow of Zion's enemies saying, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. The psalmist discusses the hope that exists in God's abundant redemption. A Psalm of David describes a childlike trust in the Lord's ways. So um, part of Part of uh, where, where the hope lies is in this next sentence here. Jerusalem is now clearly reestablished as the center, as the worship center of the people. Part of the hope that they have is in the idea of a renewed and rebuilt Jerusalem. So the psalmist prays for God's blessing upon this worship center, the, quote, dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. God, uh, Zion is God's resting place forever and the place where the Davidic king will rule and upon himself his crown shall, shall shine. Say that 10 times. All right, um, could I get a volunteer to read uh, 132, 13 through 17? The Song of Ascents about Zion. So... Yeah, yeah, please. 132, 13 through 17? Yes. For the Lord has chosen Zion and has desired it for a dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. Her provisions I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and saint, her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. anointed. That's all right. Thank you. So um, this is really the centerpiece of the Song of the Ascents, the Psalms of Ascents. Here, 132, the restoration will come through the Messiah. Um, it reminds us of the Davidic promises, uh, the, the one who will lead us 
in the ascent up to uh, the city of the great king is the king himself, the Davidic king. Uh, the psalmist speaks of brotherly unity and encourages the men of the night to praise God. Okay, when we, as we continue on in the writings, the Song of Ascents will actually play a key role in helping us connect the message of the Hebrew Bible and connecting these promises of the Davidic king to um, a specific promise that's going to come at the end, the very end of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so I'll be referring back to these uh, in future weeks. Okay, uh, let's see, 135 through, uh, are we at the end here? 135 through 150. Okay, so 135 through 137, these are anonymous psalms, 138 through 145 are by David, and then 146 through 150 are anonymous again. Um, okay, so let's see here. The psalmist praises God's wonderful works. Uh, he praises his choosing of Israel, his uniqueness, his creation of the world, and his freeing of the Israelites during the Exodus. He thanks God for, for his goodness and love, saying repeatedly that, quote, his loving kindness is everlasting. The psalmist remembers the captivity in Babylon. The rest of the psalms speak to the fact that God does not let the people and the lineage of David die in exile. So, um, you know, again, we can read this in context of the return from exile and a future hope. And you see some references there, 2 Kings 25, Jeremiah 52. A psalm of David then thanks God for his favor, saying, quote, The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. He elaborates on God's omnipresence and omnis omniscience. Omnipresence and omniscience. He says, quote, If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And that, quote, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. That's Psalm 139. Um, can I get a volunteer to read this? It's just so good. I know we're out of time, but it's so good. Uh, 139, 1 through 12. Do I have a brave volunteer who would want to read 12 verses? Yeah. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before it, there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me, it is too high, I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Right? Yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. So it is because of this, these... Uh, truths about God, about his character, uh, that David brings all his requests to God. 
So Psalm 140 through 145 are because of these truths in 139. So 140 through 145, these are, again, more Psalms of David. He's making these requests because of what he just said in 139, because of the character of God. He prays for protection against the wicked. He prays for sanctification. That's the blank there. Saying, do not incline my heart to any evil thing. He prays for help in his troubles. He prays for deliverance and guidance. Saying, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. David prays for rescue and prosperity. That's uh, chapter 144, or Psalm 144. Uh, God is praised for his goodness. That's Psalm 145. It's really the final word of David, saying, The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Uh, then 146 through 150, these are anonymous psalms. They're praise psalms to help us close the book and uh, all the theology of psalms. The psalmist praises God for his abundant help. He praises God for the restoration of Jerusalem, i.e. this return from exile, saying he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He says that all of creation should praise God for his ways. He specifically speaks to Israel saying, let them praise his name with dancing. Let them sing praises to him with timbrel and lyre. The psalmist finishes psalms praising God, saying, quote, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Here's another one. Um, psalm 150 looks a lot like the scene of Revelation 4. It's kind of a fun thing if you want to read those two side by side. Uh, significance, we really don't have time, just give it to you so you can think about David's response to God's omniscience and his omnipresence is to look for him, to him for restoration. Our immediate response to knowing God and his character should be to look to him for guidance and to rely on him as David did. Then so just think about this this week. How do you respond when you learn more about God? Is he truly all-knowing and always there? If he is truly all-knowing and always there, how should that affect our relationship with him? How can... Uh, how can we take the example of David and rely on God more? I uh, don't have time to go into this, but I encourage you to study the Davidic covenant more. That is really the premise of all of this. All of the theology is these promises uh, that we see in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And then uh, what we're actually going to see in future weeks here is the Davidic covenant again, the story of the Davidic covenant, Nathan bringing that to David God establishing that covenant with David in 1 Chronicles 17 has a little bit different purpose in that part of the canon. So we'll see that as we go. But all of this, of course, is based on the Davidic hope um, uh, about the Messiah. And, of course, as we were reading in the prophets, the short-term implications that that had for Solomon and the Davidic king. Now, as we're getting into the exile, this kind of poetic interlude between what happened at the end of Kings and what we see in Daniel, uh, the focus of the Davidic covenant becomes much more on this Messiah, this future eternal king to come. So uh, more on that as we go along. Thanks. We're going to do Job next week.